the mic likes the pillow. <laughs> so there were a lot of really good questions, uh, many more than be able to answer this evening, but some of them also tried to work into some of the talks later on. So what is the difference between mindfulness, awareness, and consciousness? And how can we practice seeing these as not-self? So this is a very basic question, really revolving about, you know, what is mindfulness? Somebody once asked me that, just over the staff dining room table, you know, to say just in a few words, what is mindfulness? And I said, it's a bit like asking what is art or what is love. Very hard to give the fullness of its meaning in just a few phrases. So a very common response to that question, what is mindfulness, we might say, it's living in the present moment. But that's not really a very uh, complete answer because there are many beings living in the present moment that are not being mindful. And one of my favorite examples of this, I think of uh, black labs or golden retrievers. You know, these really playful dogs and you see them running all over the place. They're in the present, but they don't really look very mindful. <laughs> you know, they're being led around by their noses, literally. So clearly mindfulness must mean something more than living in the present. Although that's necessary, it's not sufficient. So another common explanation of mindfulness is the observing power of the mind. And we can see this very clearly, and you probably have, <clears throat> those many times when we're lost in a thought, and then we awaken, we come out from being lost and can observe it, either the thought or whatever comes next. We can really see the difference when we're lost in something, when we're not observing what's happening as it's happening, that's not mindfulness when we bring that observing power of mind to the fact that we're thinking or any other experience in the mind or body, so then we're beginning to get closer to what mindfulness is. It's observing what's happening as it's happening. But that's still not a complete understanding of mindfulness. That's also necessary but not sufficient. Because we can be observing what's happening through the filters of greed, of aversion, of identification. And mindfulness means we're observing what's happening, we're being in the present with what's happening without attachment, without aversion, without identification with it. And so this points to what we could call the ethical dimension of mindfulness, that mindfulness is always wholesome. Mindfulness is a wholesome factor of mind and brings with it other wholesome factors. 
So here we're beginning to get a much clearer sense of what mindfulness actually means. We're observing what's happening, but we're observing it without attachment, without aversion, without identification. So sometimes we may be observing with those factors of mind, so in those moments we're not actually being mindful, but we can then become mindful of the aversion. We can become mindful of the attachment. And of course, that's our practice. And that's why one of the very useful instructions is <coughs> in, in meditation, the reminder to frequently check the attitude in the mind. Because that, that reminds us Yes, we want to know what it is that's happening, <clears throat> and we also want to see what is the attitude about what's happening. You know, and the attitude means, is, is there clinging, is there grasping, is there aversion? So this is really what mindfulness is. Consciousness is the simple knowing that a black lab has, or a golden retriever, these dogs are conscious. You know, they're conscious of different sense impressions, but without mindfulness. When we're lost in a thought, consciousness is there. And even if we've been lost, if somebody asked us afterwards what we were thinking, we could tell them, even though we weren't mindful at the time, because we weren't unconscious. Consciousness is present, but in those times of being lost, we're not being mindful. Awareness is a very uh, tricky word because we use it in different ways in English. And there's no one poly word that is translated as awareness. It's like sati is mindfulness, jitto or vijnana is consciousness. So awareness is a word in English we use, but we use it in a variety of ways, and it can be confusing. <clears throat> because sometimes we're using awareness to mean consciousness. Right? Somebody is conscious, somebody is aware. But sometimes we use it synonymously with mindfulness. You know, we say, are we aware of the object, and we're really meaning, are you mindful of it? So when you hear the word awareness, you really have to sort out the context in which it's being used. And it's helpful if who's ever using the term really defines how they're being used, how it's being used. We often forget to do that, you know, which results sometimes in some confusion. In terms of understanding consciousness and mindfulness as non-self, as not-self, with mindfulness, I think it's fairly easy because we see it come and go quite frequently. So if it were self, <laughs> it would be quite uh, a mystery what happens to the self when it's not there. You know, and so I think it's easy to see that mindfulness itself is a conditioned factor. 
to understand consciousness as not-self, this is a place of great subtlety, because it's the place we probably most deeply identify with, even as we're knowing you know, all the different objects of mind and body as being impermanent and changing and therefore not-self, still we have the sense that we're the knower. So I'm going to talk about non-identification with consciousness in a later talk, because that's a big topic. Okay. Is this all there is? <laughs> Getting lost in fantasy, coming back to this seat, meeting the hindrances, coming back to the various vibrations and weird pressure sensations of the body. This is it. <laughs> Everything feels empty, like it's really just the six sense doors over and over and over. Even out in real life, there's no role or position or partner or adventure or success or house or anything outside of this. No matter what, it's just six sense doors. <laughs> and frankly, it's feeling depressing. <laughs> and I've been feeling it for a year now. I feel this sense of grief and sometimes rage and desperately wanting it to be something more than empty. But it's said that the joy is in the emptiness. Can you help me us feel how that's true or possible? So I think that's really uh, it's an interesting question, just to hold, okay. We've talked about how the totality of our experience, and the Buddha spoke of this when he, he described the all, you know, the eye and visible objects, the ear and sound, nose and smell, tongue and taste, body and sensation, mind and mind objects. This is the all. And he challenged anybody to describe something that didn't fit in to one of these six sense spheres. But what I think may have been overlooked in this understanding is that The happiness in our lives and the joy in our lives is determined by or conditioned by the states of mind that are present. And so if there's suffering, if we're suffering, it's because of some kalesis, some defilement in the mind. Kalesis are the cause of mental suffering. Joy, or happiness, is a result of cultivating wholesome states of mind. So even though it's still within the realm of the six sense spheres, it's only the six things that are happening, but what's the nature or the quality of the mind that's experiencing them? So I just want to read a few uh, teachings from the Buddha about the possibilities of happiness. For one who is free from remorse, there is no need for an act of will may joy arise in me. It is a natural law that joy will arise in one who is free from remorse, which of course is the great gift of sila. And once we're committed to sila, regardless of unwholesome actions that we may have done in the past, 
from the time that we commit ourselves to non-harming, to ethical behavior, that's when we begin to establish this foundation of non-remorse in our lives. And that becomes the source of joy. For, for one who is joyful, tranquility arises. For one who is tranquil, happiness arises. For one who is happy, there is no need for an act of will may concentration arise. It is natural law that concentration will, will arise from one who is happy. And so we see that from that foundation of sila and non-remorse, many kinds of happiness follow. This is from the Dhammapada. Happiness is having friends when need arises. Happiness is contentment with whatever there is. Happiness is the abandoning of all suffering. Happiness is virtue lasting through old age. Happiness is steadfast faith. Happiness is the attainment of wisdom. Not doing the unskillful is happiness. So again, all of this is within the realm of those six sense spheres. But as we cultivate the wholesome states of mind, it's not seen this, the emptiness of self in that is not depressing and it's not bleak because actually we're cultivating these very joyful, happy states of mind. Again from the Dhammapada, the bhikkhu, again, that's us in this context, who retires to a place of solitude and has a calm mind, experiences a joy transcending that, transcending that of people and clearly experiences the Dhamma. Fully knowing the arising and passing of the aggregates, one attains joy and delight. If the pleasure and joy experienced in Vipassana happiness, which is complete with the seven factors of awakening, be divided into 256 parts. <laughs> I don't know where they came up with that number. <laughs> so if the pleasure and joy experienced in Vipassana happiness is divided, complete with the seven factors of awakening, be divided into 256 parts, one single part of that joy and pleasure exceeds the worldly joys and pleasures of royalty among humans, of devas and brahmas. So great is the joy and pleasure inherent in these factors of awakening. So in saying the six sense spheres, is this it? It is it, but contained within it are the possibilities of all this deepening kinds of happiness that are possible as the factors of awakening, the seven factors of enlightenment uh, are developed and strengthened. This is the counterpart to the last question. Sometimes I feel so much joy, I want to start skipping. But I fear it would disturb others. Should I just skip, or is this not appropriate? <laughs> so somebody out there is feeling joy. 
but there's actually a, a, a good Dharma point in this question. Uh, there are times when actually joy does bubble up in our practice. You know, when the mind begins to calm down and gets a little more concentrated and the energy starts to arise and there's a little bit of piti or rapture. So a lot of joy can come at times. Very often the tendency is as this kind of joyful energy arises, in a strange sort of way it can make us uncomfortable, you know, and we want to express it because the energy, it's like it's expanding us in a certain way and we might not have yet learned how to hold the expanded field of energy. So it's like it's enlarging us in a certain way. And the tendency might be to leak it. You know, instead of conserving it, whether it be in skipping or any one of numerous ways that we leak energy, just as, just as a way of kind of, it's kind of a strange idea of, uh, of relieving the happiness, of relieving the kind of the energy of the joy. It's much better as we feel it to relax back into the, into the body, into the whole system, so we open to that expanded field of energy. You know, it's like the whole, we might say the vibratory level of our being starts to we start to experience it on a more and more refined level. And so everything just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So if and when you, know, you have moments like this, it's really helpful not to, not to let the energy leak out, you know, but, but to really hold it and let it build. And it goes maybe from a time of feeling a little discomfort in it to the mind actually expanding in a certain way. The whole system expands so that we can then hold more energy. And this is how our practice continues to deepen. It's quite remarkable. You know, we begin to experience the body not as something fixed and solid. And we really begin to experience the body as an energy field. Uh, and so conservation of energy we might you know, hold that as a, as a principle in practice as well as you know, in our life in the world. I am a three-month <coughs> yogi. During the course of the retreat, I have gotten insight from direct experience that when tormenting mind states arise, it is based on either something that happened in the past or something that may happen in the future. So this is interesting. You know, that is not actually something happening right now. It's a memory of the past or an imagination of the future. At first, these tormenting states would sweep me away for a day or two. I couldn't even recall it was impermanent. Now, as of the last two times these states arose, there is greater space and awareness that this too will pass, that its nature is impermanent. How long do tormenting mind states continue to arise? What is their purpose? Are they a regular part of practice? Aside from doing no harm, noting, seeing its impermanence, metta and forgiveness, 
Are there any other tools to use to get free from these states of mind that indeed torment? Uh, I think this is not a question limited to one person. First, to, to comment that the tools mentioned are precisely the tools. It's just those of being mindful and having metta and forgiveness and patience. And obviously they're working because instead of them lasting these mind states two days now, you know, just more quickly we can see and remember remember that they're impermanent, and that itself, that wisdom, that insight creates more space. We can be more allowing for them, knowing that there's nothing we really have to do to make them go away. They will go away by themselves, because the nature of everything is impermanent. Why do they come? What's their purpose? (laughs) Their purpose is to torment us. why they come is bad habits. Really, it's just everything that's arising in our mind. It's just, it's our habituated conditioning. You know, if we had been taught, I think I mentioned it earlier, you know, about, uh, did I mention about the, the mindfulness taught to the second graders? Oh, the, <laughs> a friend of mine out in California is teaching, it's got, mindfulness is going into the schools a lot now, you know, it's quite remarkable. And so this one friend is teaching mindfulness, a six-week program to second graders. And after the six weeks, they got feedback from the kids about the program. And there were things like, I love mindfulness. Mindfulness helps me go to sleep. Mindfulness helps me in school. And my favorite, my favorite one was, mindfulness is the best thing I've done in my life. <laughs> <laughs> from a second grader. <laughs> and it probably is. <laughs> so hopefully, you know, if, if we had learned this at that age, maybe we wouldn't have established you know, these habits of mind, these reactive patterns of mind that you know, are so deeply habituated in us now. But the practice that we're doing and just being mindful of them as they arise, whatever the particular hindrance or torment of mind is, to the degree that we can be mindful in the ways I said right at the beginning, of really being with it without attachment, without identification, without aversion, we are deconditioning that pattern. You know, And over time, just as was said in the in the question, it really does get weaker. We see it more quickly. It doesn't have the same power of mind. There's one technique which is not found in the suttas, but which uh, I have a patent on, and I will share it with you. Because there was one retreat, and it's related to tormenting qualities of mind. There was one retreat I did years ago, maybe 15, 20 years ago now. It was the most difficult retreat of my practice. You know, it was, there was a lot of dukkha in the body and in the mind and self-judgment and 
it was like two months of anguish, really hard. And what I noticed after struggling, you know, with this, that there was one thought that was so seductive, if I didn't catch that trigger thought, I was just lost in the story. It was so compelling. The story was so compelling to me. If I missed that first trigger thought, I was gone maybe for 20 minutes, half an hour, lost in the torment of that particular story. And this just happened again and again and again. Finally, I, I saw what was happening. I saw that I needed to catch that thought. So this is this is another tool to use in repetitive, tormenting patterns that we see. Then we're just going over again and again, getting seduced again and again. So it's something I call cowboy or cowgirl dharma. Because when I started seeing that there was a trigger thought for this whole long story, as soon as it came, I just... Now the trick of this particular dharma tool is that it has to be done with a sense of humor. This is not a battlefield, it's an amusement park. You know, and so just when you see the trigger thought, when you see that first thought that's triggering the whole train, and you've seen it many, many times. So I wouldn't use this technique like the first time you're exploring, because you really want to open to what's happening. But by the 10,000th time <laughs> that we've gone through it, then this can be really, we just, we don't give it any quarter. You know. So I was teaching this in Switzerland, and one yogi who was really getting into it, so he came in for an interview and he was describing how he was doing this. And then he said, okay, psh, and then. <laughs> so he had to cool off the, <laughs> the gun, the six shooter. I actually recommend it. You know, so much of our practice, and I think this is especially true in the West, so much of our practice is framed in the language of yes, open to, accept, be with. You know, it's, it's saying yes to experience, which for most of us is just a hugely important lesson to learn. But there's also a place for a wise no. I mean, just imagine if you, you know, if you had a have or had kid, and you just said yes to everything they wanted to do. It would turn into a little terror. You know, sometimes you have no. You know, you can say no with love, but sometimes the no is what's necessary. Well, I think you'll be probably responding appropriately if you relate to your mind as a two-year-old, because <laughs> that's basically <laughs> Uh, what most of our minds are like. <laughs> so we do want to understand the yes, and the yes is really important because a lot of us, there's a lot of self-judgment and self-hatred and all of that. But there are times when we see an unskillful pattern, and we've seen it many, many times. You know, it's not something new and we're not particularly learning from it anymore. That's when we can 
just right as it starts, we see, no, I don't need to do this enough. So I would suggest you're playing with that. Again, the, the caution, and this is a, a big caution, to be effective, it cannot be done with aversion. If there's aversion in the no, it's not skillful and it will just create more suffering. So it has to be done lovingly. It has to be done with humor. You know, if you can do that, I would suggest you just practice at times. You know, with patterns that you see are unskillful. And the Buddha, he said, he wasn't talking about cowboy, cowgirl dharma, but I think the point is the same. He said, when, when a house is burning, the fire is put out by water. In the same way, a wise person lets go of sorrow, like the wind blowing away a tuft of cotton. Those who are seeking their own happiness should pull out the dart they have stuck in themselves, the arrowhead of grieving, of desiring, of despair. Those who have taken out the dart, who have no clinging, who have attained peace of mind, passed beyond all grief, this person is still. So this is a possibility for us. You know, we have to see in what way we're holding on to the tormenting mind states. You know, and see, we don't have to hold on, we don't have to feed it. And there are many tools, some of which were mentioned in the question, you know, of mindfulness, of loving-kindness, of patience, of forgiveness, all of that. And then in the end, <laughs> okay. In the Satipatthana Sutta, there's a lot of talk about observing things internally, externally, or both internally and externally. What constitutes an internal observation? What constitutes an external observation? What is the significance of this distinction? So this is really interesting, and it is uh, a prominent part of the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha. It's in the refrain, not only with respect to the body, but with respect to feelings, with respect to the mind, with respect to the dhammas, all those different categories of experience. The Buddha says, observe them internally, observe them externally, observe both. So I think observing internally is pretty clear to us. You know, it's what the most obvious aspect of our practice. We're just feeling the sensations in the body and feeling the breath, being aware of the thoughts that are arising in the mind, different emotions. It's very interesting to consider what mindfulness externally means. So I'll just give a few examples of what happens when we're not mindful, mindful externally, and the possibilities or potential when we are. If we're around a lot of restless, agitated people, and we're not mindful of their agitation, we're not being mindful of, 
there is agitation, there is restlessness, then it's very infectious. You know, it's, it's almost like we take on that energy in some way. And being around very agitated people, we can feel that agitation in ourselves. It's, it's like we catch it. Or, you know, if you go into a room and somebody is really angry, if we're not mindful of the fact that anger is arising in their mind, very easy to be get caught up in some kind of reactivity. It might not make us angry, maybe it makes us afraid or defensive or whatever. You know, there's a, there's a reaction to it. Mindfulness externally means that we are actually aware of what is arising in other people. When, it, when it's obvious, we're not, you know, we're not going looking for this, but, but when that's the obvious thing that's happening, there is a huge difference when we're mindful that it's happening, and when we're not, and then we're just caught up in the, in the energetic field of it. So there's one, one example of this, which is, <laughs> this is a really high bar of mindfulness. Right? But I love it when the Buddha, you know, he makes the statements that kind of are so uncompromising. It just says, well, I'll, I'll share the example with you and you'll see. This has to do, you know, there's a lot, of, there's a lot about right speech in, in the teachings, one step of the Eightfold Path. But there's this one sutta which is about right listening. And so the Buddha describes, he says, and it'll be a bit of a paraphrase because I don't remember exactly, but he said, people may speak to you in one of the following ways. They may speak to you truthfully or untruthfully. They may speak to you gently or harshly. They may speak to you with a mind or heart of love and kindness. They may speak to you with an intent to do harm. And he goes on and on like this. And then he says, regardless of how people are speaking to you, You should remain with a heart of loving kindness, filled with compassion, concern for their welfare. Okay, so just imagine the scene. You're speaking to somebody, somebody speaking to you, who's lying, speaking to you angrily, with an intent to harm you. Abiding with a heart of loving kindness, <laughs> compassionate for their welfare. What does that take? That takes being mindful externally, right? Not taking it on, but being mindful. Yes, these mind states are arising in this person. So do you see the potential for peace in that, for freedom, where we're not caught up in the mind dynamics, you know, of people that we're relating to. We're just aware of what they are. It doesn't mean not responding, because in many situations it requires a response, but 
what's the quality of our own mind and heart in the response. And the response can be strong. You know, sometimes boundaries need to be set and all of that can take place with a heart of loving kindness. But as I said, this is a very high bar in the face of that kind of speech. But that's what mindfulness externally it provides the possibility. On the other side, being mindful externally, when we see somebody being very mindful, and it's like we are mindful of their mindfulness. It's quite amazing. Our own minds can become so still, so concentrated, just just in seeing somebody else being mindful. This happened to me in Burma a lot, especially with the women yogis. I think I've mentioned this maybe in P1. The men were a little sloppy in their practice. The women, the Burmese women, of course, it was just so beautiful to watch because there was such grace and such presence and such mindfulness. So just, just observing that made one's own mind very peaceful. So that's mindful externally. In being with Deepama, you know, a wonderful teacher from, from India, who was just filled with, filled with metta and peace, and just being in her presence, being mindful you know, of her qualities, it was blissful. And so the mindfulness externally you know, has tremendous potential. A caution here. It doesn't mean that you should spend your time looking at everybody. It's just, as I said, when the situation arises, and it doesn't arise necessarily that often on retreat. So I'm really talking more about being in the world when when we're in these situations. The mindfulness externally has tremendous uh, freeing power. And so then we want to do, be mindful internally, be mindful externally, be mindful of both. When doing forgiveness practice, when is it appropriate to ask the other person actually, to actually forgive you instead of just saying the phrases in your head? First, just to make a little distinction, the phrases are not in our head, they're in our minds. <laughs> and the mind is not in the head, because the mind is immaterial. It's not a material phenomenon, and so you can't locate. It feels as if it's in the head, and that's a common experience, but just to... There was, there was one time in my practice when I was just, I was interested in kind of, you know, where is the mind? And realizing that it really is not any place. But I, I just started experimenting as, because we so usually think of the mind as being in the head. So I just, I just played with feeling the mind in the elbow. You know, feeling, just 
seeing that it was really a construct. It, it was wherever I placed the attention, there, there the mind was. Okay, this is an aside. Okay, so when is it helpful to actually ask the person for forgiveness, not just... I think when it's possible, it's very helpful. I'll just share a story with you. Over these many years of practice, I mean, 40 years of practicing, as I'm sure with all of you, there were a few incidents from my life that I really regretted. Just actions that were not skillful, that were harmful, and they would come up. And at first I would get, you know, really upset about it and be judging myself and all of that. But over all the years, I came to just see them arising and had a lot more equanimity with the fact that they were there. But they kept coming. And then I had the opportunity. I went to my 50th high school reunion. And one of these actions was, I was a kid, you know, like grade school, maybe junior high school. <laughs> I mean, the action, I'll, I'll, you'll be my confessors. <laughs> uh, for some reason, I had in my mind to throw rocks at this kid. no idea what was motivating it, but there it was. And this is what would come, come up in my mind. I, just, I felt embarrassed and ashamed and, and all of that. I hadn't seen this other kid, who was in my class, for 50 years. You know? So when I saw him, it was, it was really a moment. And I just, it's like almost the first thing I said to him, you know, do you remember that? And he did, <laughs> which uh, I was hoping he wouldn't. <laughs> But he actually did, and it felt, it really felt so good just to apologize, you know, to say, I don't know what was going on, but I'm really sorry for that. And, and it's as if it just cleared the air. And there was another incident, again, from, this was from my college years, and I, did, I didn't get to meet this person, but I, but I found out where she lived, you know, I sent her email uh, through some mutual friends, and I just sent an email apologizing you know, for the act. And she had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> you know, she, she didn't remember it at all. But in both cases, just the act of actually doing it when it was possible, it really, uh, it made a difference. You know, it just felt like, oh, okay, I can let go of this now. Um, so, as I say, sometimes it's not possible, and purifying in our own minds you know, is, is a very effective thing to do. But when it is possible, uh, I think there's a certain uh, grace in doing it. <clears throat> Supposed rebirth really happens and accepted. There is no me, no mine, no myself. Who or what gets reborn? So this is a question that comes up frequently. You know, to, how does one put together this notion of rebirth and no self? If there's no self, who gets reborn? The way to understand it is really to understand the process that's happening in this life. We, we don't need 
necessarily to imagine rebirth, although it, it, it explains the possibility, if we see that in this life, or, or we see the selfless nature of things arising and passing, and how each moment conditions the next, conditions the next, conditions the next. It's not that there's something which is carried over. There's no underlying entity which is experiencing the phenomena, what we are, it's like what we could call self, is this changing process, one moment conditioning the next. So just as a few examples, you know, if you plant a seed in the ground and you water it and it germinates and it's a sprout and a sapling and a tree and the tree bears fruit and the fruit drops to the ground, new seed, new sapling, new tree, it's not that the first seed is carried through that whole process. Rather, it is a process of transformation. Seed becomes this, becomes this, becomes this. And that's why the Buddha called this process the process of becoming. Because there's no, there's no one unchanging thing underneath it all, which is the self. What we are is this changing process. So according to the teachings, and this is not something that I know from personal experience, but the process of death and rebirth is just a continuation of this very same arising and passing, one moment conditioning the next, conditioning the next. Death consciousness, the quality of mind at the moment of death, conditions the rebirth consciousness. So a lot of questions might arise of the mechanism for this, but the understanding, the conceptual understanding that rebirth does not depend on a self. Because even in this life, that enduring underlying self is not to be found. And a lot of our practice is to develop uh, the insight, the stillness, the mindfulness, to begin to see the process clearly enough. Now, the aspect of impermanence is more obvious. Now, we can see impermanence on many levels. And the aspect of experience being unsatisfying, ultimately, because they're impermanent, that also we can get a pretty good sense of that. To really open to the selflessness of it, uh, this just takes time, and seeing the flow of impermanence again and again and again, you know, and slowly we open, uh, you know, in various stages to the, to the realization of the selfless, impersonal nature of it. Oh, there's, there are really a lot of very good questions. <clears throat> Who and what is the managing unit that seems to be behind the decisions? There is some managing agent that decides to go fishing for enlightenment, or whatever fish it chooses to go fishing for, or to have a sitting or walking meditation, 
or to walk slow or fast and where to turn the attention to or to ask this question, who is this agent? So this is very related to the understanding of selflessness because it feels like there's an agent. It feels like there is someone who's making the decisions. So this is where mindfulness of intention just plays a very uh, important role in our practice because what we're experiencing as the agent, the one who's deciding, is really the factor of intention arising in the mind. There's an intention to do something. You know, there's the volition to do something. But because it can be very quick and very subtle, we find ourselves in the middle of the action without having noticed the intention that preceded the action. And because we don't notice the intention, for most of us there is this habituated identification with it because we're not seeing it. And so we become identified with the intention, taking, taking us to be the intendor. Right? It's like we've created the agent in our identification with intention. So in your practice, just in various ways, begin to be mindful of this quality in the mind. It's a mental factor that initiates an action. And it's you know, most obvious in terms or in the intentions be before bodily movements. You know, the body by itself doesn't move. A corpse doesn't go anyplace. There's movement because there's a mind. And the factor of mind that initiates the movement is intention. Working with this in an interested but gentle way uh, can greatly refine your practice. You know, because mostly we're just, we're carried, uh, we're carried into the actions that we do, the activities we do, without noticing what's initiating them. There's tremendous power in this because when we're aware of that moment of intention which is initiated in action, first we see that the intention itself is conditioned, it's not self. You know, it's just a simple sequence. You're sitting. You're aware of the body. You're aware of a certain sensation. The sensation may be unpleasant. You're aware of the unpleasantness. The unpleasantness is getting more and more intense. Right? Maybe there's aversion to the unpleasant. So all of this is just, you know, one moment conditioning the next. Maybe the aversion, or maybe it could be wisdom, conditioning the arising of the intention to move. So it's just that factor conditioning the intention. The intention conditions the movement. It's a simple cause and effect progression. When we are aware, both the qualities of mind 
that are conditioning the intention, right there we have a chance to see is the quality of mind conditioning the intention skillful or unskillful? Is it aversion conditioning the intention? Is it greed conditioning the intention? Is it mindfulness? Is it wisdom? Is it compassion? So here I make the distinction just in terms of how we language our experience, the difference between intention and motivation. So intention is just that factor in the mind. It's the, it's the spark, the mental spark that initiates an action. The motivation are the qualities of mind associated with that intention. Is this clear? And so that's why if we're unaware of the intention then we're, we're basically living out the habit patterns of our conditioning. Some wholesome, some unwholesome, but we really don't have much choice because we're not picking up the moment initiating the action. The more we can see that, then we actually have a choice in that moment. If we see, oh, this action is motivated by greed, there's a possibility, of, no, I don't need to do that. Or... You know, this is, you don't have opportunity here to practice this, but a great place to practice this in your back in the world uh, is in speech. The in, how often are we aware of the intention to speak? Not that often. You know, it's like the, the words are out. If we become aware of the intention to speak, we have a chance to see what's motivating the speech. Is, is it metta? Is it loving kindness? Is it aversion? Is it anger? If we see that intention and see the motivation associated with it, then there's this tremendous space in our lives to abandon the unwholesome and to cultivate the wholesome. So mindfulness of intention is really a, a very key part of the practice. But you have to do it uh, just has to be done with interest. You know, not, not making it a big agenda. Intentions are arising all the time. So just begin to explore the ones that seem very obvious to you. I'll just mention one more which I found very interesting. In walking meditation the intention is actually arising in each moment to continue walking. And if the intention stopped in the middle of a step, the movement would stop. The intention is what's keeping it going. But mostly we're not attuned to that. You know, and even if we're aware of the intention to begin walking, which is good, mostly we're not really attending to the ongoing nature of the intention. Just at times, it's very interesting just, just to see, to experience Yeah, the intention is happening all along. <laughs> and you might, you might intend to stop intending. You know, just what happens? The movement stops. So I was doing walking meditation on a recent retreat. And, and really just watching that ongoing intention. 
it became very interesting because I really began to experience it. I don't know if this, this image is exactly right, but it almost felt like intention was like the little motor in the mind that was keeping things going, keeping things moving. And when I could just observe that, the impersonal nature of it became so obvious. The selfless nature. It was just it was just this impersonal factor of mind, intention, which was keeping the whole show going. And so a, a different uh, experience of selflessness, you know, of seeing the selflessness of intention, uh, it just became clearer uh, and more obvious. And this goes back now to the question, it made me realize that when we're not aware of intention, we are just out of habit, identified with it, and that's where the feeling of the agent, the one doing things, arises. It arises from identification with this factor. Was this reasonably clear? It, it's worth, it's really worth exploring. But again, don't, don't make a huge project of it, but be helpful just to take some interest in it. Okay, but there are many more, but um, I'm kind of out of time, but I want to just read the last. This was not really a question. Uh, the literature department offers you this. And this is from Franz Kafka. You don't need to leave your room. Remain sitting at your table and listen. Don't even listen. Simply wait. Don't even wait. Be quite still and solitary. The world will freely offer itself to you. That was a beautiful. Be quite still and solitary, and the world will freely offer itself to you. In some way, that's what our practice is. So let's just sit for a couple of minutes together. Before I ring the next two bells, I was reminded one of the mindfulness exercises for the kids, this, I don't know if it was that particular place, but it was an exercise uh, in working with kids. The teacher rang a bell and then they said, raise your hand the moment you can no longer hear it. 
I thought, what a great exercise of mind. Those kids were listening carefully just to the... So you can raise your hand or not. <laughs> but see, pay attention to just that moment when you can no longer hear it. And, and notice how mindful the mind is in the simple act of listening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.